What's up, rockers? Welcome to another episode of the Talk Louder podcast, where we geek out on all things rock and roll. Hit that subscribe button on our YouTube channel. Leave us your likes and comments. You can also leave likes and comments on our Facebook page. Follow us on iTunes and Spotify. You can also now follow us on Instagram. We have an Instagram account. It's talklouder underscore podcast. Make sure you look for the right one. That's talklouder underscore podcast on Instagram. And, of course, we have our website, talklouderpodcast.com. I'm Metal Dave Glessner, along with my co-host, Jason McMaster. And our guest today, I think it's fair to say, is a super collector. You want to chime in here, Jason? I'm glad you got this guy on our show. Yeah, so... Uh, Mr. Rodney Dunsmore from South Texas, uh, a friend of mine for many years. Um, he was the singer in thrash metal band, 80s thrash metal band Devastation, who uh, signed to Combat Records in the mid to late 80s and toured with bands such as Dark Angel and Death and Sepultura, to name a few. Uh, he's a legend in these parts uh, and has made quite an impact as an entrepreneurial show promoter in his early days when he was basically before, uh, you know, his band, uh, you know, gained any ground. Um, and he is a lifelong, since the age of eight, uh, vinyl collector. Uh, he collects singles. He collects demo cassettes. He collects, for the most part, 12-inch uh, LPs and 12-inch uh, singles. And... He is an incredible human being. He, uh, much like a lot of us old schoolers, um, you know, of course, was around with the uh, breaking of the dam of early thrash metal. Arguably, you could just say the big four, but it was bigger than that uh, as well. He saw all of the bands uh, that we talk about here uh, in their earliest, on their first tours of the U.S., uh, here in South Texas and would even travel to see these bands play. And um, he's a, a worthy guest for the Talk Louder podcast just because he is a freak uh, and a complete uh, self-admitted addict to collecting uh, hard rock and heavy metal vinyl. Uh, yeah. His a slideshow, it's it's ridiculous. He, he says uh, his estimate of... Uh, of LP collection um, enters the realm of 10,000 records. Yeah. <laughs> uh, his music room is a museum. But then his, and it's interesting, I've been to his castle, and his castle is not, it's just, it's unassuming. Uh, you know, the entryway has all these great framed posters from all over the place. And then you get into what just looks like the normal household. If you keep going, there's a room in the back. Once you enter, it's oh, Excalibur music <laughs> happens, and uh, it just turns into, like, this guy has a freaking record store in his house. But yeah. the trick is, nothing's for sale. How you doing, Rodney? Doing good, Jason. How are you doing, man? I'm doing great. And uh, I can't believe that you and Dave haven't, haven't met i swear you guys have maybe you guys were just having beers i think we met back at sneakers in a day or something like that probably. yeah it's it's possible i mean i've i've been in austin for 25 26 years and i grew up before that in the san antonio metal scene so we 
I'm, I know we have a lot of mutual friends, and I'm sure we were in the same building at the same time at one point or many. We've crossed paths for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's how that works. Um, man, let me let me just get this going. Um, you know, Rodney, tell us about your – it doesn't have to be a timeline, and we're going to get to all of that beautiful – uh, thing behind just so people know who are watching right now and they see Rodney's camera <laughs> the the things that he has behind him those are all real that is not a digital backdrop that you can just choose off of the zoom drop down menu for backdrops yeah that is a true rock and roll fans record collection that looks like a heavy metal museum exhibit right there. Yeah, Not yeah, yeah. Not a square inch yeah. of wall is left. It's all. You know what? Screw rock it. Let's just start with that. Tell us about your collection and kind of what got you into that. Uh, that dates back to uh, 1975. My dad bought me my first record, which was Guess Alive. I'm sure a lot of people got to start with that one. And. Uh, it just, uh, man, you know, changed changed everything for me. I, I had always liked music, but up until that point in time, had just heard maybe little 45s my mom or dad had laying around the house, what have you. But um, we, and he didn't actually even buy it for me the first time I wanted it. We were at this Music Plus store in Staples in Corpus Christi, Texas. And uh, the album must have just come out because I remember a huge display when you walk in the store, right? And, uh, man, I just went right to it, and I was looking at the album, and I'm like, I got to have this. So I went and asked my dad, and he's like, oh, no, I'm not buying you that satanic garbage. Look at that. Guys look like devils and, <laughs> and that fire on the front. Well, well, did you go, Dad, that's the reason I want it. <laughs> and, and Dad goes, where did I go wrong? <laughs> anyway, continue. But the cool thing is my parents were divorced, so I lived in Rockport at the time with my mom, so my dad – the next weekend he had me, he came home, and when I went into my bedroom, that Kiss Alive was sitting on my bed, and I was just like, oh, man, you know, it was like oh. incredible, you know. So I went straight to the stereo, and of course he made me listen to it only with the headphones because yeah. he didn't want to do it, but uh, and I listened to that thing over and over and over. Uh, you know, it was it was my introduction into heavy music, and uh, that's what got me started. And, and, and the stuff you see behind me, yeah, I have – I've just never stopped. That's the thing. I mean, a lot of my friends, I come across like ah, maybe in the 90s, they sold their record collection because they were hard up for money or just weren't into it anymore. And I, yeah, I see a lot of friends I'm now. A member, I'm a member of that club. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, you were uh, always a musician, so you needed to make ends meet however you could. Yeah. You know? yeah. And some of these guys, like I see them now posting online, they're getting excited because they're buying hella weights and i'm like man how have you not had hella weights since it came out? right you know? right one of those things but i just never sold my records i kept on to them and you know and now at the age i am if you start at eight you're gonna have a lot of stuff you know and uh yeah. people like to say oh you got everything because i've got about four or five thousand singles and about ten thousand records but uh you know there's still stuff i'm looking for it, it's pretty rare stuff but I'm i'm still looking you know do you, uh, this is sound, I feel dumb asking this. Do you, would you call it an addiction? I would. Me and uh, Rob McNeese talk about that quite often. It, it, it really is. It's, uh, 
I'm not going to say it's an unhealthy addiction because, you know, you have something for your money, like with drugs or beer, whatever you, you know, you get higher, you get drunk and then your money's gone and you don't have, but when you buy records, you have them for life. You know, I mean, it's uh, the word, the word wasted comes to mind. You've wasted your money on getting wasted (laughs) because there's nothing left over. Right. I, I feel like, uh, well, you're obviously a huge fan above all. And, uh, you know, your story is, is like a lot of others. And, and, um, I mean, obviously by the junk that me and Dave have behind us compared to the, the beautiful, uh, display you have, um, we, we are, we are slightly addicted as well. And we have our wares and, and, uh, I mean, I've got CDs and cassettes behind me and he's got, uh, autographed framed albums and posters and you have that as well as the vinyl collection. Are you against digital? Um, I don't buy CDs, if that's what you mean. I don't download yeah, I do. yeah. on the internet. I don't. No, if I can't buy it on vinyl, I just go without, you know. And uh, it's, you know, I guess so, yeah. I guess I am against digital. Yeah. I've, uh, I've always uh, found that odd, like you said, Rodney. Um, I, you know, we're all me and Jason, I don't know about you, but we're, you know, we're 50 something years old and we still have this collection of stuff, uh, that we value and treasure. And, you know, sometimes my, my friends from back in high school, they come over and visit or whatever. And they, and they, they just can't believe that i still have this stuff. And I'm, and I'm like you, I'm like, how do you not have it? Like, I, it's funny when I post a, an old concert ticket stub on Facebook or something and somebody says, Oh, I wish I would have kept my ticket stubs. I'm like, how do you not keep your ticket stubs? They're this big. You can keep them in a drawer, but what? How do you not keep them and value them and treasure them? You, you so know, I, I guess I think, we just have a problem. Or you know something. what? I, you know what I think it is about the ticket stub or something small like that is they they're not the nerd that you are that we are. They're yeah. not that nerd. They, true, yeah. You know, they, they tear the ticket, you know, that you walk in, if it, if it's even a paper ticket, a cool with the bands listed and the yeah, venue and the that's price and all that. That's, right. That has changed. But back in the day, tearing a ticket is in the garbage. It's moving on to the concert. You know, da, da, da. it's like if you buy the beer cup that's got the concert date and the logo on it and stuff, they're probably throwing that away too. You see, the collector's cup and all that, you know, you get the kiss cup from the Waterburger in the seventies and you, you throw that it. away. Yeah. You, you wash, it. you wash that and put it in a glass case. If the, <laughs> if the hat fits, right. Yep. That's a different nerd, right? Yeah. So Rodney, you, did I hear you? You said you got 10,000 LPs. Is that, is that what I heard? Uh, close estimate. Yeah. I built these shelves. And uh, each shelf holds like 500. I, I went to a record store display because I hated having them like books because I hate reading the spines. I'd rather flip through and see the art, you know, and stuff. Yeah. Last year I had these shelves built and um, yeah, it's it's uh, close to 10,000. Yeah. Man, that is crazy. I told my son that we were having you on the podcast today and he's just now started collecting vinyl and he, you know, he might have he might be pushing 50 LPs and he's very proud of them. And he's, he loves building his collection and knowing the difference between the bands and all that stuff. And I told him I was going to talk to a guy who's got like a room, like 
uh, not even in your house. I understand it's a separate room out in your backyard. Is that right? Like, no, it is part of my house, but it's the at the back of the house. Yeah. Okay. And I told my son that you've got this room that's dedicated to all this stuff. And I saw some pictures on your Facebook page, and and I'm sure the pictures don't do it justice, but it was, it was pretty impressive, man. I mean, holy smokes. Well, Dave, I'm I'm just gonna invite ourselves out to Rodney's house. <laughs> I'm just gonna I just invited ourselves out there. So, so so listen, we could talk about the record collection and things that you have, and and we could pull out what Sean calls the book. Uh, Rodney, I've been meaning to ask you, you have a copy of the book, don't you? Yeah, Sean gave me one a few years ago. Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome mm-hmm. book. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, that's kind of um, means that there's sort of the secret club uh, for the people who have the book. Uh, on top of there is... Uh, you know, for, for those of you listening, we did an episode with our good buddy, Sean Weingartner, who's a bit of a collector, fan, musician, etc., and uh, who uh, is a friend of ours, all, all of ours, Rodney's included, and uh, he is, it's no surprise that he and Rodney are like, you know, have ventured out to... Uh, you know, tell us about maybe some of the festivals like overseas that you and uh, you and Sean have been to together. Uh, well, the only one I've been that Sean was at was oh. last year. Keep it true, but oh, uh, oh right, I think I was there. Uh, yeah, you were there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <you> performed. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I just started. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I saw this um, advertisement for this new wave of British heavy metal festival called Brofest, uh, kind of a weird name, but uh, in, in Newcastle. And uh, the the bands that were on it were just insane. It was like Mithra, Bleak House, you know, Holocaust. Bands that, as a kid, I never thought I'd have the chance to see because those bands are not coming to America, you know. Uh, so this guy put on this festival, and then he had it for like six or seven years straight, and every year I would fly to England, I mean, uh, fly to Newcastle just to see this festival. And I mean, I met some great people, uh, got some, some lifelong friends out of it, uh, saw some amazing bands. Uh, yeah, it's just great. I mean, the people I think here just don't understand how the scene is in Europe. It's, it's just a lot different. It's Germany is completely insane. I mean, it, that country probably has two to 300 metal festivals alone, just metal, you know, a year it's, it's yeah. just insane. I mean, it's it's crazy over there. But I mean, I yeah. mean, I love it. I'd love to go every chance I get. Yeah, it's interesting. Here, here's a good way to look at it. And I've always thought, uh, found this extremely interesting and not surprising to someone like us. But um, that an American heavy metal fan, just you know, your average someone who claims to be a heavy metal fan or a, even a hard rock heavy metal fan, I'll I'll generalize a little bit. And they see an ad in a in a uh, an import magazine, maybe an underground magazine, where a festival in Germany, like similar to what you're talking about, whether it be in the UK or in in Europe, and there's a list of all these bands, and it's you know Metal Fest, you know 2023, and there's all these metal bands on there, and half of them are even American bands, yeah. and the average American so-called hard rock heavy metal fan will not know any of the bands 
will be not familiar with any of the bands on there. How common is that? Um, I guess that depends on the size of the festival. You know, there are definitely some more obscure underground festivals like Headbangers Open Air and stuff like that, where yeah. you get more of the cult classic kind of bands. But, you know, something like Hellfest, you got Judas Priest, Black Sabbath, yeah. you know, sharing the stage. So, uh, I mean, yeah, the lineups look awesome for these fans over here because we don't get stuff like that here. But yeah. there definitely ranges from uh, festivals that get maybe five, six hundred people to you know whatever hundred thousand at Vakin or whatever they get you know yeah so it's normal to to have a venue that only holds let's say just like a thousand people oh uh, yeah in the middle of uh you know the uk somewhere that will have bands that an american heavy metal fan will never have heard of whether it be by age or they're into more uh popular titles so to yeah. speak yeah, I mean, that's common. That, that was my point. Some of those festivals, yeah, they have nothing more than demo tapes. You know, it's it's insane. Somebody will track them down 30 years later off of a demo tape, and the guy's like, yeah, I'll come play it in Europe, you know, and start the, the, get the band back together, start rehearsing. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. Just to play their seven songs. Exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, so they, and they have their suit and tie haircut, and they come yeah. out yeah, wearing wearing their their wife's clothes <laughs> just to just to have something to wear on stage right <laughs> so so besides all the all the metal festivals where you know I, I imagine you go to every possible record convention you can ever go to what's the most money you've ever dropped at a record convention oh shit um <laughs> probably uh at the austin one uh one year Back in the 90s, I remember I dropped almost two grand. I was just finding all these rare things at once, you know, and it just was like, it was killing me, you know. But, uh, you know, like the first Molly Crew 7-inch on leather, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. that one, I, I think I paid like 100 bucks back in the early 90s for it. But now I'm sure it's, you know, whatever, 1000 But But um, I've definitely dropped some cash. Even a couple years ago at Keep It True, I dropped close to 1,000 euros because – these guys from Greece and Spain, they're bringing all this stuff that, man, I've just never seen, you know, and it's, yeah, I guess, yeah. like going back to what Jason said, it's an addiction. I'm like, man, how can I not have this? You know, who cares about the money? I'll have a chance to make more money. I may never see this record again, you know, so I just, I, I, I'm one of the few people that I put records over money because money's everywhere. Everybody has money, but these records, some of them are not, they're rare, you know, it's just, it's stuff that's hard to find, you know, so I'd rather have a cool record than a hundred dollar bill. That's just how I am, you know. That's a that's a, an interesting way of putting it. That you can always uh, make more money, but you might never see this record again. That I that like, explains like that, that right there explains a lot. Yeah, well, <laughs> and, and and I think that sort of hidden in there, it's kind of an obvious, or maybe it's not obvious. Uh, and but I'm just going to try to hit it like it's a bullseye. There might be <clears throat> you take out of ten thousand records. There might be a hundred of them that are worth a thousand dollars. Yeah, I mean easily. You don't know that, but yeah. or do you know that? Uh, I don't keep up with the prices as much as most people or some of my friends. But I mean, I, I do have a generalization of what the but, things. But are. think about think about what I just said because it's kind of blowing my own mind. At least a hundred of the records that you have sitting right behind you right now, a hundred of them could be worth close to a thousand dollars true or false 
Oh, that's easily true, yeah. So a hundred of those records you sold them are worth a hundred thousand dollars. Do you see what I'm trying to say right now? It's kind of like a sickening, sticky, ugly, beautiful thing that you're talking about here. So your shit is an investment. That stuff you have, that addiction you have, that's an investment from a business standpoint. You're not looking to get rid of anything. That's not what you're what you're doing here. Obviously. You're doing this because you love this shit. <laughs> he obviously doesn't get rid of anything. No. <laughs> so, Rodney, let me let me ask you: out of your collection, what would you say is your most valuable record, and what is your sentimental favorite out of your entire collection? Wow, that's a good question. Um, value wise, I mean. You know, that Militia EP is sold for over $3,000. And uh, in fact, last year at Keep It True, a guy had one for 4,500 euros, which comes out to close to five grand. And by the end of the day, it was sold. And I mean, like, and I've got multiple copies of that one. So it's making me think like, man, now might be the time to let one of those go, you know, because uh, well, yeah. I, I love the music, but I still have a few more. So, uh, so and that one also is probably one of the, most uh, sentimental as well because you know getting it from the band at, at the show where they played and i mean it was the, the back of the cameo and i remember phil and uh mike were unloading some some gear and stuff and he goes oh we got our records in and they had a box and i'm like holy shit you got the records and he's like yeah the ep is gonna finally be out and i'm like man i want to buy one yeah sure you know five bucks you know whatever and um he goes it sucks because we only were able to print up hundred. We, we were low on cash, but, uh, we talked to the place in Tennessee or whatever, and we're going to get a few hundred more later on at a later date. But right now we just have a hundred. I'm like, Oh, cool, man. Badass. And, uh, sure enough, they, I think they left 25 or 50 at Hogwad and the other 50 probably sold in Austin, but I'll never forget those, those militia records just sat in Hogwad for years. Like I would go in there and there was like 40, I'd go a couple weeks later, 38, 37, getting down to, you know, until the last, uh, Got to the last six, and I think that guy, uh, Chris from Switzerland, was in town visiting Watchtower, and he, he ended up picking up the last five or six copies. And Because uh, this yeah. guy was already – he was kind of ahead of his time with records. He knew collectibles and what yeah. was going to be worth money and stuff like that. So he saw six militias, and he just grabbed them all, and that was it. Chris Liebengut is who we're yes. talking about, who has been mentioned and told in story form uh, in our episode with Bobby Jarzombek. So Bobby was talking about how he sort of ended up with the Halford gig and it all went back to Watchtower was rehearsing at the Jarzombek house and we had Swiss Chris in tow with us. He was just hanging out with us. He was living with Rick and Doug from Watchtower. So we're at Ron and Bobby's house in SA and Chris is out just wandering around the backyard and here's Bobby practicing his riot songs in the little studio in the backyard and walks in there, just walks in there and it's like Bobby's like out there working and he's like, Who the fuck are you? And he's like, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm Chris and I'm da da watchtower and da 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 Oh, all right. And they became quick friends and and uh, and then years later Chris was setting up some stuff in LA and he knew some people and got ultimately help Bobby get the Halford gig. It's, it's the same Swiss Chris that you're talking about right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, it's such a small world because I was, in 86, I went on a family vacation with my dad to California, and I was like, man, it would be so cool to see, like, just one of these California bands up close and personal, you know, in a small venue. 
And, you know, I was hoping for something like Blind Illusion or Heathen or something, but like, holy crap, Exodus was playing at the farm. What? And I'm like, yep. And I was like, man, where I lived, where my aunt lived was at least an hour out of there. So I took a Greyhound bus into San Francisco, right? At the farm and I was waiting in line and uh, I, I met this guy from Switzerland and it turned out to be Chris's buddy, a guy named Tom. They had a fanzine together, but uh, we were sitting there talking about stuff. And uh, Was it Tom Moeller? Tom Mulch. Like M O E, yeah, Tom Mulch. I know Tom. Yeah, yeah that Mega Wimp magazine. That's yeah. right. That's right. And Tom, I believe, uh, stayed with me and Eric in Austin for a little while. That's probably true I, as well. I think yeah. So yeah, we were there in line just talking. You know, wow. And Paul Bailoff walks up right, and yeah. and we're like, holy shit, it's Paul Bailoff. You know, like a god. You know, yeah. And so we're like, blah blah blah, and he's like, I'm like, man, dude, I cannot wait to see you tonight. Blah blah blah, and he goes. Oh, I'm out of the band. You didn't know? And I'm like, what? And he's like, yeah, tonight's the first show with Zetro from, they got the guy from Legacy. Yeah, Legacy, yeah. Holy which, crap. Which, tur which turned into Testament. Which turned into Testament, exactly. So still a great show, and I enjoyed it, but to not see him with Bailoff was a little bit disheartening, you know, because he, just the presence he has, you know, he's just yeah. uh, one of those guys. Yeah. yeah. Small world, metal world is so small because we but all. He was like, yeah, I know, right? Uh, Paul was kind of like the 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 miner he was like the coal he was like the blue collar he you know what i mean he's like the underground you know he was the guy like getting getting everybody together and yeah, he was like exactly. the, yeah yeah he was a character yeah he was a yeah lived and breathed metal you know yeah wow. yeah so out of um out of all your vinyl, what band would you say is the most collected? What what's what's what band is most represented in your collection? Hmm. Um I, I probably have easily over a hundred different thin Lizzie things, you know, different pressings or variations or compilations or um uh, they're a big one. Um I, I told Jason this the other day when he came by. I He's probably one of the most represented. I mean, he's the most represented person on different. I think I have like nine different vinyls of Jason between Broken Teeth, Watchtower, Dangerous Toys. Um, you know, who knows uh, all the other ones? You know, he, there's just so many. He, I got like eight or nine different albums with Jason on it. But I would say Thin Lizzy is probably the biggest single band. And then kind of like era that I collect the most is the new wave of British heavy metal. I have at least 2000 singles from that era. And that's, that's my favorite era because it's like, to me, it, it was like when hard rock was just turning into metal and it was so raw and it was so powerful and had a little bit of punk attitude in it. It just, um, man, it was, it was just the time, you know, and to, to, if I could have been in England and between 79 and 82, it, I would have been in heaven, but yeah yeah i feel like that had a, that movement had a little bit of a diy thing about it too oh completely DIY. Yeah, those bands are coming out of the you know they were they were working in the fields so to speak they were just blue collar as shit you know they yep. still had grease on their hands from you know uh working in the steel factories and they'd go do a gig you know and uh it's working man's music for sure Without a doubt, yeah. yeah. And I mean, the way American bands would put out demos, they would put out seven inches over there, you know. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, I mean, it's what uh, out of all those Thin Lizzy records, or is it fair to say that Thin Lizzy is uh, your favorite band, or is it just a coincidence that you have more of them than? There's definitely, 
if not my all-time favorite, they're in the top two or three. I mean, then Lizzie, Judas Priest, Metallica, it kind of fluctuates day to day. But overall, I mean, if I had to say, I would say, yeah, Phil Lina to me was probably the greatest songwriter ever. His just yeah. the way he put words to music and the music he wrote, it's just, you know, the, yeah. the guy was just ahead of his time, you know. So yeah, what's, the, what's your what's your favorite Thin Lizzy record? Because I'm a, I'm a big a fan too. There's a couple of bands like Thin Lizzy, Riot, Budgie that I don't have a favorite album because I love so much. But my go-to, if I'm going to play one, the past few years has been Johnny the Fox. I just I just go to that one because it's uh, it just crushes, you know. I mean, it's mine too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Cool. cool. Well, yeah, I'm a Thin Lizzy fan myself. I can't say that I have a hundred copies of that. <laughs> their albums but who can so i don't feel so bad yeah so there's so many things that we could talk about we should probably switch gears and and probably even just kind of fall back on uh something in your collection by way of uh you know the next uh sort of topic so you're down in corpus christi growing up you're a big hard rock heavy metal fan and um, how old were you when you, maybe what year was it that you kind of decided that you wanted to be in a band? Um, and what no. made, what was it that made, yeah, I guess what was it that made you want to, you know, start trying to write your own songs and were you ever doing any cover songs with a band yeah, before no. you? Cause a lot of people did that. They did covers first with their their neighborhood buddies out in the garage, you know, on a Saturday. Um, Yeah, I come from zero musicianship background. So the fan part is right. I was just a huge fan. I guess in high school, um, you know, the the underground scene was happening like 83. The floodgates kind of opened with Metallica, Exciter. So that kind of stuff, obviously, really, really appealed to me. So we didn't have anything like that in Corpus. So I would have to drive to San Antonio to see the concerts. And me and a buddy of mine would always go up for the Slayer versus Slayer and watch that. That's how I met you, you know, at the Cameo mm-hmm. Theater when you guys played with Hellstar. Um, so I, I just had a sense. I loved the underground. I loved the feeling of it. I loved the, the music first and foremost, but everything about it was like, I mean, it felt like, man, this is ours. This little bitty thing is ours. You know, it's um, not everybody knows about it. Not everybody cares about it, but we do. And it was special. And I, I guess I started before wanting to be in a band, like I would try to bring the concerts down to Corpus. Like I brought you guys Watchtower. I brought Nasty Savage. Um, you know, I was trying to, some were hit or miss, some would make it, some didn't, but um, I, I just really wanted to see the scene flourishing like it was in other places. And um, so I, I got into promoting the bands and doing this kind of thing. And then a local band that was kind of doing originals and doing a good thing was this band called Final Assault. Well. Dave Burke, who was one of the guitar players in the band, he ended up uh, quitting the band at the height, at the peak of their, I mean, they were like opening for Ingbe and Metal Church. I mean, they they were Corpus's version of, you know, Watchtower like was in Austin, you know, and he just up and quit. And I'm like, dude, why'd you quit? You know, the band was good and everything. And he's like, yeah, I just, I want to do something heavier, man. I want to make a thrash band. And I'm like, ding, ding, oh, lights are going off, you know, and I'm like, well, dude, that rules because that's, you know me, that's what I love the most. And He's like, yeah, how would you like to sing for it? And I'm like, whoa, what? I can't sing, man. I've never been able to sing. And he's like, come on, man, it's it's thrash. You know, listen to this Hellhammer and all this. They're not really singing. You know, you can do that. And I'm like, 
well, shoot, I'll give it a shot for sure, you know, and that's kind of what, what led into it, you know, and we, in the beginning, we didn't care about anything. We just wanted to have a band that could play live shows, thrash shows, so people could come out and hang out and the little community could, could just be together, you know, and uh, one thing led to another. We put out that self-financed record. Um, then after that, we, we felt we got a little better because we had a second guitar player kind of leaning now more in a Dark Angel Slayer mode. And so we did a demo and sent it to Combat. We sent three demos out, Combat, Megaforce, and Metal Blade. And within a week, we got a call from Combat. I, I was sitting in my apartment on a Saturday morning, and this guy calls, and uh, he goes, hey, uh, I'm looking for someone from Devastation. I go, yeah, that's me. What's up? He goes, this is Scott Givens from Combat Records. Uh, we'd like to sign you guys. And I'm like, what? And he goes, you haven't signed with anyone else, have you? And I go, well, no, we barely sent our demos out. He's like, well, we're real into it. I love it, and uh, we need to talk, you know. And I go, well, hell yeah, you know. And of course, combat. Are you serious? Like that's yeah, such you, a label, you know. It's like, in your collection. You have all everything on combat in your collection. Yeah, of course, yeah. And I'm like, we're just little five little knucklehead kids from Corpus. Why? How is Combat Records contacting us? You know, I mean, it, it was just insane. But uh, of course, yeah, we signed the deal and we went out and made a couple records and did a bunch of tours and and uh for a few years we're just living our dreams you know it was it was a great innocent time because it was still still fairly underground although it was getting bigger yeah. but just was is um, this uh, is this 85 about 85 late 85 is when we put the band together 86 was the self-financed album yeah. and 87 is when we signed with combat so that's right. kind of Timeline, yeah. Well, that's kind of a sweet spot right there. Um, so, so right. you say, you know, this is a little bit all over the place because there's so much about your beginnings that I that I could I could like question. You know, do like a true and false uh, yeah. game, and we should probably do that here in a minute. But let's talk about 80, 87, 86, 87, 88, maybe. Yeah. Give us a rundown of bands you open for whether we've heard of them or not because you might have been middle bill and there was a cool band that like you know jumped ahead a year later there you know what i mean tell us about some bills and some tours you actually got into the van and and went all went around the u.s and and did did runs with whether they're popular or not and maybe we'll interrupt you and talk about da 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 Okay. Uh, yeah, we were always down to play live. So obviously we always wanted to take every show and every opportunity we could get. Uh, I mean, we've opened for Exodus, Celtic Frost, uh, Dark Angel, Death, Sepultura, Laws Rocket, DBC. Um, those are some of the maybe bigger ones. Oh, Testament, yeah. Kill, we did that uh, show. Um who did tour you do? Who did you do longer runs with? I know you did a. a we did a tour with Dark Death? Angel. Uh, Death. Death. We did the whole U.S. tour. Death. You did a whole U.S. tour. Yeah. That's what I yeah. thought. That. That's what. That's kind of like, the cream, de la crop. Uh, it, I feel like that's really the was. one. I feel like that's the one that people sort of met you, and yeah. befriended you, and you became sort of. This sounds funny, but a household name in the metal community, and like you, be, you were friends with Gene already, Gene Hoagland. You, uh, you know, you were already pen palling with everybody. You and I were already friends. We had been friends for years at that point. Yeah. Uh, so all a lot of the people that that 
that you that that I knew you knew, and then you because of the scene, uh, and your your being a a a singer in a band, but not not until you were a promoter bringing. What's the biggest show you ever brought down to Corpus? Um, I helped bring Anthrax down to Corpus in '86. So that would have been spreading. Yeah. They sold out the Ritz, which was pretty killer, you know. Yeah. Wow. What about? Uh, did you were you involved in bringing Megadeth down to Corpus Christi? Uh, just on a local level, that was uh, Joe Miller Jam Productions, and okay. he All right. got me to uh, you know pass off flyers and this and that. And yeah, we were supposed to open that one because I remember didn't you come into town for yeah. that? And yeah. It's like Megadeth, Lizzie Borden, and us, and then at the last yeah. minute, like somebody said they weren't moving their drums, and you're not playing, and total dick move, you know, and like but whatever, you know. Yeah, uh, but yeah, that that is true. But you're right. That death tour has really opened doors for us because for death, it was the spiritual he- healing album, and um, I still remember to this day being like in Connecticut somewhere, it was snowing on the ground, and uh, back then we had to use payphones, of course, right? So yeah. you know, Chuck was over there on the phone, and I was waiting to be next, and he got off, and he told me, "Holy shit, man!" He goes, "The people at Combat just told me." Uh, Spiritual healing entered entered the, the top two hundred charts or whatever, and I'm like, whoa! And he says, yeah, they're saying it's the first ever death metal album to enter the charts, you know. And I'm like, man, that's crazy, you know. Congratulations, that's badass. But yeah, that tour they were selling out every night, and it was uh, for us it was unbelievable because you know we got to be the direct support for that tour, and we had the same booking agent as them. That's kind of how we got it, but um, it was just a blessing for us. We we really took the ball and ran with it after that you know oh yeah so so what happened with devastation why why the eventual breakup i mean every band's got this story but in your case what is it that brings the band to an end yeah i think mine i don't know if it's typical or not but we we finished um at the the last well okay well the summer of 91 uh, i don't know who remembers but it was a tough for touring for metal bands because uh grunge and that alternative stuff was really exploding and uh it was even jason was out with that operation rock and roll tour same time and i i think jason can even verify that some of those shows got canceled because of you know the shit that was going on but so our booking agent could not find a good band for us to go out with so he goes man i'm just gonna make you guys a headlining tour and we were like man we're not really ready for that you know this is we just put out idolatry which was our third album which is to me the best album. Great. We finally, we were finally able to put on tape what we were trying to do. And, um, so we, we, we decided if that's the only choice, that's the only choice. So he, he booked a tour that was uh, devastation, malevolent creation and demolition hammer, uh, which is a good triple bill. Um, and it, he, he goes, well, what, where do you want to play? What do you want? I said, Mitch, just book the biggest tour you can. We want to play everywhere. So he month later, he comes back. OK, I got your dates. And we ended up playing like 76 shows in 79 days or something like that. Like we played all over the country, Canada, Mexico, everywhere. And I mean, we played like a little I guess it was a Japanese restaurant in Oklahoma City. Like, I mean, he was just booking us anywhere he could get us, you know. So we did that tour. And then. Um, definitely there was a little friction on that tour between the band stuff was just going on and, and we played the last show at Joe's garage in uh, Fort Worth, kind of a legendary place. Yeah. And, uh, after that show, um, I remember Dave Berg, like he went home with his girlfriend and, uh, I think me and Ed might've wrote home, but we just kind of all got in our own vehicles left. 
went home and that was we didn't know that that was going to be the last time we ever played on stage but it turned out being that way uh, and then a, a month or two after that while we were still a band uh mitch got us a, a good european tour opening for uh i think it was massacre morgoth somebody like that and then combat was like man we can't give you any tour support for that you know 91 and i didn't know that they were getting ready to close down the label completely but they're like yeah we can't give you any tour support so like the two guitar players, Dave and Henry, were real strong set and like, well, we're not paying our own way to Europe. There's no way. I've been playing guitar for 15 years and it's got to pay for itself. And while me and Edward, the bass player, were like, because we were always working, you know, dirty jobs and stuff. So we were like, we had the money. We're like, let's just do it, man. We'll go over there. We'll make the money back from selling shirts or whatever. It just it'll open so many more doors if we go to Europe. And uh, we ended up voting and it um, two, two guys didn't want to go, two did. And one guy kind of like didn't care. But for whatever reason we just me now with the knowledge i know and and i, I would have forced us to go you know but i just at the time i was a young kid as well and we just didn't go and then a month later we get a notice from combat that hey we're dropping you from the label the label's breaking up and you know yada yada and then kind of just everyone went their separate ways and it, it was just over like that have you have you uh have you pursued pursued music since then have you been active in in a band since devastation that i'm un, unaware of or have you kind of put that in the background well yeah i put it in the background there was one small thing i had a part of uh me and this old buddy from mine from houston rob mcneese uh jason knows him quite well he he had always wanted to be in a band and sing and stuff so i picked up bass and we uh we had this band called killing machine in the 91 after or 92 excuse me when devastation broke up and we put out a seven inch single but we never played live never did anything after that single it's kind of just a one-off thing but no i always looked back and i mean people ask me that and i'm like nah i mean for me it was a one-time shot we we got to do what we did we were very lucky um you know we, we weren't the most talented band in the world and you know being five kids from corpus to play all over the world and do the stuff we did it was to me it was great and i I was able to say, hey, I, I did it. You know, I did what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not really good enough to go sing for another band or try out. But that one felt like kind of it was my band as well as the other guys. So I felt comfortable in that. Outside of that, I it was out of my comfort zone. So I, I didn't participate in anything else. No. When you think yeah. about when you think about uh, our, our, this is an arguable uh, phrase here, how short lived devastation was you in in my eyes rodney you you went to the top of the mountain you did and you pulled off things that that kids that at that age you know uh you know between 18 and and 25 still dream about you pulled it off you did everything that everyone between that age shit 50 year olds wish they could have they could pull that off right now <laughs> I have a lot of questions for you uh, when you when you kind of think about let's you know let's play that true or false game right now. Okay. The talk louder true or false game starts <laughs> now. <laughs> Rodney Dunsmore, uh, man of many hats, is it true that you uh, maybe not too much pressure to say soul handedly, but is it true that you and maybe a couple of, you know, garden gnomes uh, sort of created uh, a scene down in Corpus Christi 
when there wasn't one or in the beginnings as early as maybe 82, 83, 84 by some of the things you've already talked about, bringing bands down, forming your own thrash band. I know that Anchor Watt was already a band down there you were friendly with and that fit sort of with Devastation quite well. Is it true that between probably you and a couple of other bands or people created a scene that would be considered the metal scene because i feel like there might have been a punk rock scene kind of underground punk rock scene already happening at that time um down there is it true true or false that you can even though you might feel a little greasy saying yeah i helped create the metal scene down in corpus just get over that part of it and say true or false i mean i'll definitely say i i helped push it to fruition you know like i i i, I took a big role in um, like uh, I mean, there's always people who talk about things and people who do things. And I always wanted to be the guy who does things, you know. And uh, so, yeah, I took a big role in that. And it's funny that you say that, though, but it's actually the reverse. I, I think, um, like, for a while there, Devastation and the Underground Thrash and Metal and all that with Anthrax, Metallica, that was huge. But it was it kind of was quick-lived in Corpus because Corpus, as much as I love it, it's my hometown, everything, it's very trendy. So, like... Like when thrash metal was it. And then when anchor Watt came out like a year or so after us, all of a sudden these kids that I saw in creator shirts and denim jackets, now they have Mohawks and their uh, offender, you know, shirts or whatever. So, you know, they were just jumping on a new bandwagon or whatever and nothing wrong with that. You know, I mean, anchor Watt was a great band, the great people, but um, Corpus was just always not a trend setter, but a trend follower, you know? So, yeah. Um, you know, it's a small town, you know, just, yeah, it's not just Corpus. That's, that's normal. Yeah. That's probably yeah. a lot of places, you know, yeah. there's only so many Austins and San Antonio's, you know? Yeah. yeah. So, so is it true that, that, you know, you, when you formed your own band and you released your first record on your own, um, and we're just, you know, putting it consignment, you know, putting it in stores everywhere yourself, doing the work yourself and, You'd only done a handful of shows probably at that point while you're bringing bands to, you know, like bigger thrash bands, et cetera, down to Corpus so you could be on the bill or at least put your friends on the bill. Um, when you were in, ended up on Combat Records, which you were a fan of all of the bands that were on on the label, and you had sent your your stuff to the three labels that you know uh megaforce metal blade and combat and all you did was look at the address on the back of those album covers exactly yeah, yeah. that's it yeah yeah it's not a magic trick oh here's the address right here on the back of the album code that you <laughs> the album that's sitting behind you somewhere right in the right now you right, saw yeah. that address you I'm licked sure a stamp to this day looking at the back of Killing All, calling that crazed management, which was just rock and roll heaven flea market with John Zazula, you know, and him answering. And I'm like, hey, man, I live in Texas. Is Metallica ever going to tour here? And he's like, yeah, actually, I think they're coming down there in late August or something, you know. And I'm like, hell yeah, you know. I mean, it was like, it was a different world back then, you know. I mean, it, it was, um, but yeah, the, the doing it yourself with our record and stuff, you, you know, you're right. One of the proudest things early on for me was I, um, I, I hooked us up with the uh, even on the the self finance release that was on your Zombo label. 
I ended up hooking up a, us up a deal with uh, important record distributors. I don't know if you remember them back in the day. Of yeah, we we uh, we used them for that for the Watchtower record, which was like yeah. to, to be to clear that so they, up. They got yeah. it nationwide and then yeah. even worldwide. And, and one day I bought a Kerrang at like the record bar in Sunrise Mall, and I looked at a Shades advertisement, and it said. For sale, devastation, violent termination, six ninety nine or whatever. I'm like, holy shit! You know, our records are for sale in England. I mean, that's when you're 18 years old. That's mind blowing. You know, that's that's insane. And it just it, it did make me feel proud. I you know I'll admit that it, it was you know because we did it all ourselves. You know, right? Yeah. I, I want to go back to something you said earlier because I thought it was kind of funny and 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 it's interesting at the same time. You said. Uh, uh dave burke is that his name the guitar player that you formed devastation with he asked you to sing and you said i've never sung a note in my life um and then you obviously you know put your foot out there and did it and so tell me how you went about developing your style your confidence uh your voice tell me how you go from i've never done this before to putting out three records and that's touring good, with death. that's a good question um the confidence thing, I don't think I ever had, so we'll say that. But in the beginning, and I, and I wish, going back to something Jason said, I wish we would have been, we were just like, like patience is not one of my virtues, right? Like I'm very impatient. So as soon as we had an actual band with four people who could play instruments, I wanted to write songs and create these songs. And I wish we really would have like done covers in the beginning, like Diamond Head or something, you know, so that I could try to practice singing to someone else's stuff and developing a certain type of voice or, or at least widening a, my range or something because, but being that we just wrote songs, well, I'm trying to put music to a song that didn't exist before we wrote it. So I always struggled with that. And like the first album, the vocals are horrendous. They totally suck. By the second album, it got a little better because it, it, not that the vocals were better, but they fit the style, at least of the music, a little better. And then by the third album, it's one that I can say, yeah, that's that's good. I did a fine job on that one. Um, but I, I never felt comfortable and I never really had a singing style or direction or um, I mean, I just wasn't lying to him when I said I had never sung a note in my life. I just didn't. You know, I would even when I was a little kid going with my parents to church, I wouldn't sing in church because I just thought, oh, no, this is you know, I just I just didn't want to sing, you know, and. Him asking me that really did kind of freak me out, but uh, I, I just gave it a shot and, you know, we did what we did. So, but yeah, I've never been confident or comfortable and I don't think I ever really did develop a style because all three albums, the vocals sound completely different. You know, it was just learning from, oh, that sucked. So let me get a little bit better. Let me do something different. And ah, that kind of sucked too. Let me, you know, it was just trying to keep, keep getting it better, you know, trial and error. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, you did you did everything right. The 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 your process it was your process. The the crazy the batshit crazy is the fact that you'd never done it before, and you're writing your first song when you're writing your first song. You're writing your first song before you'd even knew what your fucking voice sounded like. That's exactly true. That yeah. is insanity. <laughs> you don't even know what you're gonna do yet. And you're trying to write lyrics. You're trying to write cadence. You're learning about songwriting. You don't know shit about songwriting. How are you learning about songwriting? Yeah. You're probably following Dave Burke's lead a little bit. He he probably would you say that he gets gets some credit on how to put put the tunes together, 
or were you basically going off of uh, your favorite songs that you kind of wanted to emulate? Uh, I mean, I kind of did handle most of the lyrics, but yeah, Dave has to get so much credit because Dave Burke was the sound of devastation. Even when we we added um, Henry, um, most Dave wrote most all the stuff because Dave just had a style. And I compare it to like, you know, like when you hear a Hanneman song, you know, it's Jeff Hanneman, you know, and that's kind of yeah. how Burke was. He just had his own, own own style, his own sound. And without Dave Burke, Devastation would have never accomplished anything because that guy, I mean, he just he knew how to write heavy, you know, and maybe yeah. Henry would write a riff and Dave's like, nah, that's a happy riff, man. We're let's we're going to do something different, you know, and Dave just knew he knew what he wanted and he knew what sounded good. And yeah, he he, he did push us in the musical direction that we that we went for sure. I feel like there's a lot of um, I mean, it's obvious you you guys were set out to be a thrash band. You know, you're you're saying Dave knew what he wanted it to sound like. Well, I feel like you are admitting that, you know, your limitations, of course, and wearing them on your sleeve and being humble about it and knowing when you can do better. Uh, all of this is a process and you fig you figured it out because the first devastation record. I mean, sure, you guys got better as you wrote more songs and did more shows and fi you figured out what was going to work with your voice and, and what destroyed your voice and what didn't destroy your voice, you know, just by trial and error. Like Dave said, that's all it is anyway. But being trying to sing in key and have melody is not really that's like saying it's like you, we mentioned the late, great Paul Bailoff. He, I call it like the Scooby-Doo vocal. <laughs> and, and you didn't, you don't really, you didn't, didn't, don't sing like that. You had your own thing where it was kind of shouty and might have been a little closer to like early Chuck Billy or something. And I feel like, uh, like what Bailoff has called it the Scooby-Doo where it's a... <laughs> kind of a scooby-doo right 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 i call it the scooby-doo and you know who i'm guilty of the scooby-doo i use the scooby-doo all the time but it's the paul bailoff thing just to get away from a cartoon but you know the high screechy down into your guttural voice right and then you do it again and it's a thing it's 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 actually a style in thrash metal so you you had your own version of of whatever that is i wouldn't call it the scooby-doo or a paul bailoff like i said it was you know kind of a rat-a-tat-tat and then you would when the, when the riff would change you would you would change to to fit your cadence to fit what was happening in the tune and that's ultimately the basics of what it is you guys were doing uh musically now the fact that it got better is all because of your uh experiences with it is all i'm really trying to say the more shows you did the more songs you wrote the better it got and it got to a peak and you guys here you go here's a scenario tell us about the time you're in New York and you see that I'm playing with the toys at the Ritz Theater, Studio 54, yeah. and yeah. you knock on the door and I and someone comes and gets me and pulls me out there. Hey, there's some guy out here that's looking for you. 
Yeah, yeah, that was a trip. We were on tour with Sepultura, and I think you were on tour with L.A. Guns. And, uh, yeah, we had, like, the night off, and we wanted to go to the show, yeah. And uh, I, I remember, yeah, you it was it was a, crazy seeing that that's, you had made it to such a level, yeah. That's surreal to me when I was running into my homies. I got to tell you, Rodney, I didn't even know how to act because it was all like a big wow to me at that point uh, for for just where I was musically, yeah. and the and the the machine was working for you know that kind of butt rock, you know, butt metal and hair metal as some people like to call it, and and I you know the MTV thing and all that, and then here's guys that were that I was with, you know, shoulder to shoulder in the underground going, dude, what's up? And, and it's like, whoa, it was like a, it made me so happy to just see us both on, to me, it was the same level. The fact that we were just kind of bumping into each other on the road. Years, you know, and also, this is another thing too, that you can attest to. You think about the time that we met, and then the time that we're bumping into each other in New York and the journey you had and the journey I had is such a quick span of years. It's only like three or four years. Yeah. That, that, that shit was happening fast. Yes, it was. It was. You went from zero to 200 miles an hour in, 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 in kind of a, a roundabout way. I did, too, with the things that I was doing. And then here we are going, dude, wow, crazy. Yeah. Yeah. From like 85 to 89, yeah. it's, it's pretty weird. Yeah, you're, you're all those miles from home and uh, making your mark, uh, each of you, that's that's really cool. And then to bump into each other, that's pretty, you know, a face from home, how cool. <laughs> yeah, well, and that was probably happening, That it was happening to both of us on uh, – kind of nationwide yeah you know yeah. uh when when were you uh how many dates you think you did with dark angel uh dark angel was we took over that tour when death uh got i don't know if they i think they just left they didn't get kicked off they just left uh death and dark angel was supposed to be like a co-headlining tour a combat uh ultimate revenge type thing and mm -hmm. Uh, the bands just didn't get along. I don't know what the stuff I've heard the story from Bill Andrews and Terry and Chuck. And then I've heard the story from Dean Hoagland and Eric Meyer. And so, um, you know, we get along with both of them. So that's all I'll say, whatever their differences yeah. were, you know, um, I don't know. It was maybe 10 or 12. Um, I think, wow. um, death dropped off. I think, well, I think they just dropped off in Florida where they were living in, and then we started maybe in New Orleans and went to the maybe to like Phoenix or uh, somewhere on the West Coast or something. We did about yeah. two weeks, I guess, with them. Yeah. And you did some right. Texas dates with uh, Rotting Corpse. Is that right? No. The, no. Oh, the, the Rotting Corpse and Dark Angel was just those two. Oh, OK. Right. We didn't do that. But you didn't that do was any Texas dates. You didn't do any. Yeah, that's right. You didn't do any didn't do Texas dates. Yeah, we played the back room. I think you were there. Um, yeah. 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 We did all the Texas dates. There was about eight of them. It was even little places like Amarillo. And yeah. I mean, it was, it was a lot of Texas dates. Texas is big. Yeah. Do you yeah. know how many underground thrash metal bands that wish they were, if they were alive and they were a band, 
at that time. You know how many of them are jealous of you? A lot. <laughs> a lot. A lot. Because Dark Angel is, you know, one of uh, the Los Angeles thrash kings. Yep. For sure. Um, what about Hyrax? You ever do any gigs with Hyrax? I never, never did. No, okay. I never, never played with Hyrax. But I bet, but I bet, Caton Depena has been to some devastation shows. Uh, no, I've seen him. No, uh, I, I didn't see Hyrax until the early two thousands. They came to. Oh, really? Portland. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, I never saw Hyrax. Okay. They never really toured through Texas, and I never made it to California when they were playing. So, right. I, I uh, want to go back to your record collection for a minute because I'm looking at it in your background there, and 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 being a, a collector myself, nowhere near on the level of, as you. But um, is there anything? Is there is there an album out there that you that's eluded you all these years? What's the one album you're chasing like the Holy Grail, and you just can't get your hands on it? Well, it that's that title has changed over the years, but like for there's a band called uh, Buster Brown from Australia that features uh, Angry Anderson and yeah uh, the old drummer from ACDC Phil Rudd yeah uh, that was a big one for years uh, uh, I always wanted to find that like the Rush on Moon Records um, you mean this Scott, one Rod Buster Brown there it is that's it yeah <laughs> you guys might need to work out a deal. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, oh, you got this, it now. Okay. Yeah. So this what, one's... what reissue it looks like? Yeah. Yeah. What's currently on your uh, at the top uh, of your wish list? The top of my wish list right now, there's two albums. They're European uh, '70s hard rock albums. Uh, a band from Sweden called Solid Ground. Uh, that's one I'm desperately looking for. And then uh, this weird band from Luxembourg of all places called Cool Feet. They, they're uh, Man, it's just that album is unreal. And one sold on Discogs uh, last year for like $5,500 or something sick. And I'm like, I'm not paying that. I mean, even though like what I said earlier about I'd rather have records than money, there's just a line you got to draw, you know, and it's just. Of course. You got to be <laughs> careful, two, man. Those are two of the bigger ones right now. And I mean, it's, you know, it, they're they're obscure, you know, and probably people listening are like, who the hell is that? You know, but it's just. um you know, most of the normal stuff, like all the Metal Blade, the Combat, you know, I just, I have all those things. And then I have all, all, most of the U U.S. private pressings and uh, stuff like that. So it's just, it's getting to a point where, yeah, it's harder, which is good because now I save my, like I go into a record store now, nine times out of 10, I'm not leaving with anything. And, let, and you know, like I might need one Uriah Heap as a filler album or a certain Blackfoot, which not that's wrong. I have all those. So anyway, but you know what I'm saying? There's, yeah. there's some filler things of, 70s hard rock that i'm still still buying and still picking up for yeah, yeah the, the so, big items yeah i've got most of the ones i want i'm still searching so for those you have if you have the whole rainbow or the the whole sort of discography of one band and you're just missing that one and you and you just find it to go ah this is not really one i like but it's the only one out of their discography i'm missing you'll go ahead yeah. and get it yeah. oh i'll go ahead and get it and and it's so weird because when you go to as many record stores over the years as I have, and I mean, I do travel a lot, so I go to a lot of them, you know, you, you see things and then you kind of, um, you think you already have it because it's just so common and, and you've seen it so many times and you think, oh, well, there's no way I don't have this. So like just the other day, I was going through my ZZ Top and I don't have real grand mud. 
And I'm like, how the hell do I not have Rio Grande mud? You know, and that goes back to the addiction part that you were talking about earlier. Cause like, yes, when I do collect the band, I, I, I get them all like all the rainbow, all the blue oyster cold, all the, you know, uh, Sammy Hager. Like I love the solo yeah. Sammy Hager, man, his, you know, uh, I do want to have them all. So yeah, even if their band puts out a weak album, like, yeah, I have load, I have reload. I even have that stupid Lulu album, you know, but right. do I ever listen to it? No, but I have it. Right. Uh, I still have never heard Lulu to be honest with you. I, I, I kind of like some songs on load and reload. I know people will shoot me for that, but there's some good stuff on there. Well, they can, you know, you know what you like and they know what they like and they, you, who's judging who, you know? Yeah. But, so, so you're obviously a metal dude, but what is what's in your collection that would be described as a guilty pleasure or something we might not expect <laughs> from Rodney Dunsmore? Uh, I I got to admit, one of my guilty pleasures is is Ariel Speedwagon, even the the High Infidelity album where they got Radio. I just love it, man. I mean, it's uh, that's, that's one of my favorite records. You know, it's you just know, you know who mentioned. You know who mentions REO and who is a fan of REO Speedwagon and actually friends with Kevin Cronin. And th this it's not a surprise to me. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Is Rob Halford. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. So good songwriting is good songwriting is all I have to say about yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's true. That's what gets lost, you know, and that's when I was younger. I didn't really realize that when I was younger. It was about how heavy or how fast or how brutal. But, yeah. you know, a good song is a good song. And that's what music's all about is creating a good song. And that's right. You know, there's yeah. a there's a live album. There's an REO live album that I think my brother Randy turned me on to. But like like many things, my brother Randy turned me on to. Uh, one of them was uh, I think it's called uh, You Can Tune a Piano, But You Can't Tune a Fish. Yeah. yeah. And uh it's so good yeah it's a live album so it's a little heavier it's ballsier you know yeah uh they're they're they're, they're playing a little faster it's meaner the vocals are a little meaner i mean we're talking about ario speedwagon here we're not yeah. talking about you know even a you know but uh i would argue and say it's probably better than a van halen record you ever wonder why there's not really a good live van halen record with david lee roth yeah why yeah, well, I wonder why. I mean, I have. I, I'm assuming I know why, but I, I'll I'll save it for another show. Um, so you know, is there, I would is, say the same thing about a live Motley Crue. This live uh, Motley Crue record. I see where you're coming from. <laughs> yeah, you know yeah. what I'm talking. What I'm yeah. talking about now. Yeah. Is there is there anything in your collection that's outside of the rock genre? Um, I mean, I've got a couple things. Yeah, I mean, I have. Maybe some B fifty twos. I don't know if that's considered rock or I, I call anything with yeah. people shoot at me for saying this, but you know, anything with drums on it is rock to me. Country oh. music is rock. B fifty twos are rock. Lobster yeah, had to do it. Uh, Ten thousand maniacs, uh cool. Singer Basha from Poland or somewhere. So I, I mean I, I do have I mean I just I just like music. If it's good I, and I like it and it appeals yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about something that you posted the other day that was actually a gift. You didn't have to auction for this. You didn't have to like beg for it. You didn't have to. And this is effing huge in the underground. You posted this on Facebook the other day, and some people might 
uh, have seen that post and recognize what I'm about to talk about. And this is the handwritten lyrics by Jeff Hanneman for a song called Kill Again that ended up being called what? Fight Till Death. Fight Till Death from, the, from Show No Mercy. You have handwritten lyrics from Jeff Hanneman yeah. for Fight Till Death, which at the time was called Kill Again, which they used as a t for a title on Hell Awaits, if right. I'm not mistaken. Tell us about how that came to be in your collection and who's responsible for such an incredible uh, hand-me-down, if you will. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, I owe it all to two friends, Brittany Elliott and John Araya. Um, they, um, Tom's younger brother. Yeah, Tom's, Tom's younger brother. Yeah, he, he's moved to San Antonio uh, recently, and uh, him and Brittany got a house nah, not too far from me. And, um, you yeah, know, I did a few things to help them out, let's just say. And then um, they, um, they surprised me. They said they're having a barbecue at their house, and I should come over and uh, – you know, we barbecued and hung out, had some drinks, had a good time. And then they present me with this gift. It's like, wow, tearjerker, you know, like, man, you're giving me Jeff Hanneman's handwritten lyrics, you know, and I was blown away, you know, and I'm still am even now. But um, yeah, those are the two I owe it to. Yeah, John, John's a smart guy, man. He kept a box of, of stuff from back in the day, man. You would love going through that box, Jason. I know I would. I, I believe that you actually snapped a few shots of the box and the things yeah. just kind of laying out that he had in here. Right, holy yeah. shit, click, holy shit, click. And it's just like stacks of of stuff he's just got, you know, like, ah, this old shit. He still has the original paper where they were trying to make the Slayer logo. There's like five or six different versions on there. And then, like, the one that Lombardo did kind of, because I guess he's left-handed or something, where Slayer was kind of leaning or whatever, uh, he's got that. And I was like, oh, my God, this is this is the first time Slayer was ever on anything, paper, whatever. That was the yeah. creation of the logo. So, yeah, so, he still has that. I mean, so he let has me So I'm going to interrupt you because there, this, is, this is like some historical knowledge here, like uh, National Treasure kind of shit, yeah. Tomb Raider kind of shit going on here. Uh, Indiana Jones. Um, here you go. So, Slayer used to be called something else. Yeah. Um, Dragon Slayer. That was the S.A. Slayer version. Dragon Slayer. No, I'm talking about Los Angeles Slayer. They, they were, were called also, something before Slayer, weren't yeah, they? They were also called, like, Wings of Fire or something like that. They had a, a okay. longer name, too, at one point. I don't know the chronological order of it, but, I mean, I know they were called something else, yeah. Wow. Yeah, I always thought it was Dragon Slayer, and it, and I I didn't I don't I don't have I don't, any recollection of Essay Slayer having having been called Dragon Slayer. I think I read that in uh, Juan Herrera's book. I think they I thought Essay Slayer Essay Slayer was known as Dragon Slayer, and Villarreal said, "Let's cut the dragon out of the name and just call wow, it." Wow. Okay. Yeah, you might be. I might just be. I remember that as well. Yeah, I might just have the old man blues here, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> this is trivia that probably many people don't know. There was actually, there was a, a band, it's funny that you say it, called Dragon Slayer, part of the new wave of British heavy metal scene. And um, they they were called Slayer in the beginning. And and then their 7-inch came out in 83, right when Slayers did. So then wow. they, they took back all their 7-inches and they put a little sticker over it and they changed their name to Dragon Slayer. Wow. And then, of course, there was the SA Slayer, but there's one people don't even know about 
And these guys were the first to hit vinyl. There was a Slayer from, from Arizona and their vinyl hit in 82. I have a copy of it. And it's so if you're talking about the legitimate first band to be called Slayer on vinyl, they're from Phoenix, Arizona. So it's wow. not one that we know of. <laughs> right. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's I a, just got edumacated today. Yeah, that's a kind of a mind blowing tidbit. But you know, I'm not wow. I'm not surprised by such a um you know, an archivist. Yeah. Which is the first time I've I've used that today in this episode with Rodney <laughs> Dunsmore here. Um, who has probably the biggest collection of hard rock and metal that I've ever seen under uh, a man's personal residence roof. Yeah. Uh, it's out yeah. of control. I, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's posters and, and record store promo stand-ups and, and uh, cause demo cassettes, isn't it? It's not just vinyl. Yeah, that's that's what I wanted to know. Um, I I wanted Rodney to expand on his collection. Let's get beyond vinyl. What else do you have? Uh, I think Jason touched on it because I've seen you know tons of rare posters. I'm guessing you've got all kinds of backstage passes, demo cassettes. What else is in that collection of yours? Looking around here, some of the cooler stuff. I have the Ted Nugent pinball machine backdrop. Uh, I have a stand up from. Uh, uh, Thin Lizzy from 76, uh, record store display. Wow. I have the old Sodom record store display. Uh, I have um, this UFO puzzle that came out in the late 70s. It was pretty rare. It was a promo item. I have that. How do you get one of these displays from a record store? So t- how, how do you... <laughs> I want to know how you get a Thin Lizzy uh, a record store display. Yeah, what's the first? What's the first? What? Tell us this. Yeah. Uh, to, how do you approach that? How do you? Hey, do you just walk up to a guy that's working at the store and say, "Hey, dude, when you're done with that thing, I want it. I'll buy. I'll buy it off you." How? How do you go? How do you end up with that in your house? Yeah. Well, that like I said, that was just eBay because uh, in '76 I didn't know Thin Lizzy, but. Uh, if if I see stuff now in, in record stores and it's old stuff, then yeah, I'll offer them if they want to sell it or whatever. But uh, that one, unfortunately, was eBay. And I do have a few things that are from eBay that are pretty cool. I got a lot of Ted Nugent stuff in here. Um, a lot of promo Ted Nugent stuff, stand-ups from also record store days, a big double live Gonzo record store display, 3D, it's pretty killer, Triumph, uh, just tons of that kind of stuff, you know. How many, uh, because you have such a massive collection and, and you're, and you're well connected in the, in the scene, have you ever had any, uh, touring bands like come over and hang out at your house and just have like a big listening party? Um, yeah, actually I have, um, certain bands. I don't let as many now as I used to when I was a little bit younger because, uh, unfortunately to say a couple of times stuff's coming up missing or whatever, but, uh, like. A couple that really were big ones to me was the the band Satan when they were on tour uh, their first time coming over here. Uh, they they stayed at my house and I had all five members in my record room and we took a picture you know and it was just like to me that was amazing you know because you got Brian Ross from Blitzkrieg and you know all the the original Satan guys and and yeah we were flipping through records and it was so great because Steve Ramsey's telling me like oh shit, Trespass, I haven't seen this in 30 years, let's jam it, and you know, and it was fun for them, because they were seeing these records that they haven't seen in a long time, and so they're one, um, 
some some newer bands like uh my best buddy jamie he's in a band called midnight they're getting pretty popular so they stay here night demon stays here um there's there's been a few others uh but uh, Those probably are like that's that's like family to you now and we'll yeah, get now that. that's they are family now yeah, yeah. yeah. so um but yeah satan might have been the biggest one um you know that's cool. Well, that's cool. Man. That's that's really cool. Uh, like you mentioned, Brian Ross of Blitzkrieg. I mean, you're talking about a legendary new wave of British heavy metal band. You're talking about a a legendary uh, new wave of British heavy metal uh, singer. Uh, Blitz, you know, band Blitzkrieg. That that's like a twofer that you got having Brian Ross there because you know, uh, you know, Metallica used to cover Blitzkrieg. It's a famous song that he sang on that he helped write that's the guy standing in your living room basically right yeah and that's he, incredible to me that's incredible he, uh, uh that, of his house or the royalties or something he told me <laughs> say that again said he might have paid off his house with the royalties he got from the blitzkrieg you know so. i i have no doubt in my wow. mind it's yeah. uh you know I, I've, I remember hearing lemmy talk about uh the checks that he got from uh you know the metallica guys doing that the Motorhead medley on those cover albums, you know, yep. it's pretty, pretty great, wow. pretty impressive. Um, so, so let's talk about when you and I first met 85 back of the cameo. Uh, it was either, I know it was December, but I can never remember if it was 84, 85. And I want to say 84 because I remember the second time I saw you was that Kelly drive-in show and oh, that yeah. for sure, that was 85, which makes me think it had to be December of 84. Okay, so uh, the Watchtower debut, Energetic Disassembly on Zombo, was not out yet. No, 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 not out okay. yet. Okay, okay, I always thought it, it that it was, but I've known you longer than, than I thought. Uh, so here's where I'm going with this. So with all of the, I mean... A lot of people don't realize this, and I'm just going to kind of wear my heart on my sleeve right now. I have a lot of respect for you, Rodney, because you are a nerdy fan just like we are, just like the people who, who love the show and uh, and have already seen, like, you know, 50 episodes of or listened to, to every episode we've done so far. And the thing is... You know, I went down to Corpus and hung out with you in your apartment and I you know, we were young and I and I slept in and you had to get up early as shit and go to work. And you were working <laughs> at like Whataburger and then you'd you'd get out, out of Whataburger and go work at Taco Bell next door to the Whataburger and in my head I'm going now hold on a second. This guy's like got these totally disposable jobs either so he can up his record collection or so he can do the things that I don't re that you don't even realize that you're going to end up doing and that is here here you go your work ethic and your passion are equal you're doing this these shitty jobs and and you're just like nonchalant about how shitty the job is you know you become a manager at a fast food restaurant so yeah, so you can buy you know these underground heavy metal records and up your collection so you can eventually what well, here's the the invisible sort of like you know ghost that you haven't met yet uh be a show promoter for lack of a better term 
to form your own band and probably help uh, pay for gas and buy a van and whatever backline you guys need to do this because you were kind of the manager yeah. in Devastation. Let's say that. We don't have to get down to the nitty-gritty on how much money you actually did put forward to get that band off the ground, but that deserves a crown right there. Uh, you, you know, you were just the the humble beginnings of what became the formidable Rodney Dunsmore in my eyes. Uh, you know, you, you were, and let's fast forward to now, you know, uh, you show, you brought bands to Corpus, you cre help create a scene, you get, some, you, you form a band, you get signed to combat, you live out your dreams by touring with bands that you worship and have become friends and respected by them. Uh, you know, where did you end up? How did you end up? And this is where I say it: uh, starting a T-shirt printing business and getting the accounts that you have, because you have some fairly large accounts, if I'm not mistaken, or your T-shirt business. And and where and, and and to just kind of throw this in there on top of it, I'll let you just vomit all over us with with whatever uh. you say about it. But you tour as a merchandise manager and basically kind of uh, helping out. You mentioned Midnight and Jamie and those guys, which are fucking awesome, and they're they're one of the bigger acts on Metal Blade now. And la 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 la. Tell us about all of that shit from A to Z. And then I want to talk about A to Z, the band <laughs> that featured Simon Wright on drums, who was just a guest on this show. Okay, go, Rod. Um, yeah, the, the work ethic, it started at a young age because uh, two things. My dad was a super hard worker. He was a welder in Corpus, and he always instilled that in me that, you, you know, you were born a man, you're going to have to work. That's just how it is, you know? And uh, so relatively i mean i wouldn't say we were poor but we definitely didn't have money for them to buy me records and concert tickets and things like that so i always had to have a job so the day i turned 15 i got a job and i've never stopped working and it's it's crazy because it's just instilled in me like my last company that i had i sold in 2010 for uh, for a pretty hefty amount of money right the next week, I was flipping burgers for $10 an hour at my buddy's restaurant because I just felt I had to keep working. I'd have to have a job because you can't sit around. And that money, I could have sat around for 10 or 15 years if I wanted to. But I just thought, I can't. You know, that's just not me. That's not. So that led on to that. And, and, and going back to the Taco Bell thing when I knew you. How old, how old were you when you sold your first business? It was 2010. So I was what? Um, yeah. Uh, 40 maybe 40, or 40 yeah 40 yeah so that's pretty good going back to that taco bell i um the biggest <laughs> sorry thing, Rod, sorry had to had to throw it in there man <laughs> uh, the, the only time i almost quit or would have got fired or whatever it was you may remember this as well uh in 1984 um in the same week there was two shows i always always took the day off to go up to san antonio for the concerts right but in november of of 84 we had Motorhead, Merciful Fate, and Exciter at the Joe Freeman. Three days later, Slayer and Slayer at the Via Fontana. Yeah. And I put both days off on the calendar. Well, I had to work six days a week. They only would give me one day off. 
And she says, well, pick one because you're not going to both. And I'm like, well, then I'm quitting because I'm not going to miss either one. How do you pick between those bands? No, at you, that don't. Time? You, you don't. I remember that week and I remember I was a jobless sofa surfing son of a bitch. So <laughs> that, that's, that's that tells you what was going And you were about to just scoot over, Jason. You know, <laughs> the same shit was about to happen. But yeah. yeah, it was a finally she worked it out, you know, because they, you know, just happened that way. But yeah, it, I was ready to quit because I was not missing either one of those shows, you know. And it's um, so I, I don't know. I do I do pride myself on my work ethic. It is, um, you know, maybe above average, I guess. I don't know. But um, the the t shirt business thing came about as um, I had just moved to San Antonio from Corpus. And like you said, I was the manager. I always had to get stuff done for the band. So I had to find a new place to get our shirts printed. Well, I went into this one place and uh, the guy looked pretty cool and he had a good price. And so he goes, yeah, we'll do your band t-shirt. So I would get them done there. We would go tour and I would come back and vice versa. So we came back off the tour and it might've even been that death tour or might've been one previous, I don't know. But I told him, I go, look, man, I don't have anything going on for six months. Um, are you hiring? Do you have, do you need any help? And he said, yeah, I could use you. So I started just catching shirts at the end of the dryer and boxing them. And then I, I saw the guys printing. And I'm like, man, I want to be a printer. That's kick ass. So within a week or two, I learned how to do the printing. So I was printer. And then it turned out I was the shop manager and one thing led to another. Then after about 10 years of working for this guy, I was like, you know what? I just need to make my own business. Cause this guy had went through a bad divorce. He was kind of on drugs and uh, we never knew if we were getting paid or not, those kind of things. So I just said, you know what? I'm leaving. So 1999, I left, formed my own business, and um, just been doing it ever since, you know. And then, of course, well, I met Jamie back around the turn of the since maybe around 2000. Um, from Midnight, was, to be clear, Midnight, Jamie from Midnight, lead, lead singer, bass player from Midnight. Yeah, he was uh, He was in a band called Boulder, and they were playing with a friend of mine, Gordon's band, uh, Deadpool, they were playing at Medieval Nights. I don't know if you remember that place yeah, or not. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it was like a Friday, Saturday night, and, and I go, and then I went with Phil Baker, and uh, <clears throat> one of us, me or Phil, I can't remember, had on a Parallax shirt, and Jamie just walks up and goes, whoa, you know about Parallax? And I'm like, hell yeah, that's one of my favorite EPs. He's like, oh, yeah, I love it too. You know, we just, man, it was a spark and a friendship developed that, you know, we always kept in touch. We always, you know, knew what each other was doing. And then, uh, what band was Jamie in when he was down there? It was called Boulder. They got three albums out on smaller labels. Um, ah. just hard rockish metal crossover kind of. And kinda what deal. year? And what year was that? Uh, it was around either '99 or 2000, right around the turn of the the century. Um, okay. And and, then, and uh, to be clear, Phil Baker is uh, was. He's passed on since, but he's one of the uh, uh, founders, if, if I'm not mistaken, for what's known as the in the underground metal scene as the Midwest Militia. Right. He, uh, yeah, him and Dennis had that fanzine, and they also had a couple of record labels, and yeah, yeah those guys were like the go getters in Chicago. Like when you would look at Art Shock America, the big, the, the heavy hitters were Ron Quintana in San Francisco, Ruben Luna in Texas. The Midwest was Dennis Bergeron and Phil Baker and then somebody they had in Florida and I think Don Kay in New York. So, like, yeah, those are power people in the underground. You're, you're, yeah, they, all of those guys deserve some kind of thankless, you know, the 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 uh, the trophy of thankless underground power. You know what okay. I mean? Like, they, they created scenes by, uh, by creating pulp 
and yep. uh, and 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 tape trading list and record store mail order and order imports and fanzine and radio and it's it's in yeah so so you've got this t-shirt business is it still going today uh, it is still going today yeah and, I, and so uh, who are some of the bands that you work with now um i i don't do as many bands as as you would think because it's just so busy i do a lot of like schools and local heb and spur stuff and but i i do a band called steel panther um they're one of my clients. Uh, in the past, I've done Queens Uh Of course, I do all the midnight shirts. Um, I've done the Satan shirts when they come over and tour. Uh, I've done some shirts for some festivals overseas. But it's it's like uh, the the bands are definitely not my bread and butter. And I and I do tons of local bands. And sometimes I like it and don't like it because you know the the, the local bands they have the least amount of money to spend but they're the pickiest and they want this and that and this and that. And it's well, well on that note, Rodney, thank yeah. you for printing up my shirts all these years. Oh, <laughs> Jason recognized his cue. Well, well also I want to, I want to bring this up. Uh, you know, Rodney does the talk louder shirts. Ah, oh, boom, daddy. I, there you go. I didn't know that. Well, now well, you know, well, thank you for that. I, I did mm -hmm. not know that. We appreciate yeah, preci precision screen printing in San Antonio, Texas, the the best company I've ever worked with. Let me tell you this: how how what was Steel Panther's last order from you? Uh, the amount or the yeah? Part? How many how many T-shirts? How many how many goddamn Steel Panther shirts did you print? Are you responsible for in in, in, in one in one order? Seems like the last order was between three and four thousand. Uh, they're not they're not like steady touring they're, they're kind of sporadic like yeah. they'll do a week here or there and whatever but but they do sell some merch you know and they got funny designs of course you know yeah. and but um yeah they're they're uh, of the bands yeah like this year that i've printed more steel panther shirts than any other band only because midnight hasn't done anything like the past few years midnight does thousands of shirts as well but they just they haven't been doing anything so yeah well i can't wait till we place an order for three thousand talk louder t-shirts <laughs> Well, let's let's hope we get there. Let's. That means uh, we'll. That means we're on to something. Yeah. We need to make some more episodes and have some more <laughs> kick-ass guests like Rodney Dunsmore. Um, you know, uh, Rodney, we could talk to you for a year, uh, <laughs> just about your collection and your love for, uh, you know, vinyl and uh, and all things hard rock and heavy metal and and just the things that. Uh, make you want to get up and, and go to work so you can buy more records. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. It's been great talking to you, man. Stories have been awesome. And I, I so need to come see that collection in person because I'm sure it's just a mind blower. It, it, it looks impressive on the video screen. And I realize I'm only looking at one corner of one room and, and I, I can't even imagine what the rest of the place looks like. Yeah, if you can, yeah, just he's spinning his camera he's for those his of you camera who, so that who are not we can uh, get a little a watching. little more jealous. Yeah. <laughs> My own small record store, basically. That's amazing, man. Yeah, but nothing is for sale. But nothing is for sale. <laughs> nothing is for sale. Yeah. Well, yeah. I feel I feel lucky to to have some titles in that mass collection. Yeah, you got quite a few actually. Well, I'm I'm glad that you don't have like uh, 
you know, the McMaster bin where <laughs> you just put all my different bands because I've got a hundred bands all in one place. I like it that you have them spread out alphabetical. Yeah, I keep proper. them to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would expect nothing less from someone of Rodney's, you know, caliber. He's one of these guys I imagine that's going to have everything chronological, alphabetized. Um, it's not going to be there's not going to be a McMaster uh, category. It's all going to be all your bands by name in chronological order. <laughs> this is my cue to say, like, yeah, I don't think Rodney has a bin. He's like, yeah, the shit that I don't like that's just my friends. I just keep it over there in that bucket over there, and that's where the McMath. It would just have my name on the bucket. Yeah. Thank you for putting. <laughs> thank you for putting me in alphabetical order, like like, I, like it matters. Tossing them over there. Yeah. Because yeah, uh, you know. Uh, the the cool thing is 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 Rodney obviously uh, supports uh, all music yeah. and uh, has supported me. Uh, I could almost say my entire life. So uh, yeah, that that to me Rodney is kind of a king and uh, a great old friend and and uh, I really appreciate you talking to us today, Dave. If you don't have any final words. No, not, I, I just want to say thanks for being on the show, and uh, one day I hope to uh, bump into you in person and uh, we can get to know each other, you know, proper. Like, I've heard about you, I, I'm aware of you, people rave about your collection and your passion for metal, and it's and it's obvious just from talking to you today. Um, so, yeah, thanks for being with us and sharing your stories and, and letting us kind of nitpick through your collection a little bit at a distance one day i'll do it in person <laughs> yeah, man. yeah man um all right that that's gonna do it for another episode of the talk louder podcast i'm metal dave glessner with my co-host jason mcmaster and our special guest today rodney dunsmore super collector musician and all-around cool dude from corpus christi thank you all for listening to another episode of the talk louder podcast 